we trying to burn more fat during the hour of exercise or are we trying to reduce fat over a chronic period you know what what are we trying to do here and what's the best way to do it there's some quibbling going on about a muscle full effect in sort of in the real world where you're not necessarily just consuming quickly digested and absorbed forms of protein without any other macronutrients present. Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Comfort Zone podcast. My name is Israis Hag from Fishassi Fitness and Nutrition. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts about the various topics taught in fitness education to better understand the research, challenge some beliefs and biases, and provide helpful information all the other health and fitness professionals out there who may have questions just like mine. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Now please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. See you soon. All right, everybody. Hello, hello again to the second part of my conversation with Alan. Now we are praying today to everything out there that technology doesn't let us down. <laughs> How are you doing, Alan? Thank you so much for being here again and for making the time to have this conversation with me. I'm doing great, Yusra. Thank you so much for having me on. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Amazing. Okay, so what I was thinking is we could pick up from where we last got interrupted right we were talking about how to to best maintain muscle mass in ramadan where the where the the fasting period is long in the uk we usually were looking at between 15 to 18 hours so i want to maintain my muscle mass what am i doing alan as far as nutrition and training goes yeah for ramadan the the main compromise there other than that big time period where you're not eating is mm. the not drinking any fluids aspect of it yeah. for people who follow it that strictly, you know. So you would want to, in addition to getting enough protein, which is going to hover around, right around a gram per pound of target body weight, mm. you know, we can fudge up or down from that guideline a little bit, depending on really what, what your goals are. But that's a, a simple catch-all target that covers everything pretty well, especially during Ramadan where you're going to have a tendency to be net hypocaloric by the end of the day and by the end of the week. So keep your protein in place and keep resistance training in place. And so that doesn't mean you have to resistance train every day just because you're you're fasting every day, but maintain a certain certain minimum of resistance training volume in order to maintain your muscle mass. You're not going to have the same level of energy to do your full output for your normal training performance. So sometimes it, it can be looked at as a good opportunity to deload. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can view the, the month of Ramadan as a good time to institute a deloading phase where you are either training with about half the intensity or effort that you that you normally put in and along with that you can also train with about half of the load mm. or around there that that you normally use 
Mm. And alternatively, you can just cut your normal training volume in half. If you don't happen to have the energy to put in your full effort and full volume. But surprisingly, there's a handful of people, bodybuilders, of course, mm. who just train full out through Ramadan. And then it really just kind of becomes a matter of making sure you get enough protein and making sure you hydrate during the, the feeding window. Yeah. Like for me, Ramadan is, yeah, I haven't got any energy during the day. So if I'm looking at my workouts, they're going to be after I've eaten and usually twice, three times a week at most, like you said, it's a heavy deload and just maintenance. All I'm looking for is maintaining the amount of mass that I have and not attempting to, to increase it. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the, the common sort of myths that we hear a lot and, and claims, Alan, especially as Ramadan approaches, is this superior benefit of training fasted, right? So the story usually goes, hey, when you're fasting, your insulin is really low, which means you're going to use fat for energy, which means you're going to lose total body fat. So go for it, right? Mm -hmm. And I know if I remember correctly you and brad and james krieger you had published a study where you looked at body composition changes the differences between fasted and fed is that right yes yeah talk to us about man gosh who who even knows about the study i did with brad schoenfeld and james krieger on fasted versus fed cardio how do you even know about that stuff man <laughs> My gosh. Okay. So this was in 2014. I think, yeah. 2014. That's a long time ago, man. Well, that's, is that, is that freaking nine years ago? Yeah. I think so. Wow. So yeah, nine years ago, we, we did a study, we recruited college aged women so it was one of the first studies where we're actually studying the female population, whereas, you know, like 80% of sports science is done on men. So we tried to try to break the mold here and try to break the redundancy of, of just consistently studying men. So it was, it was a relatively short study. So it was a four week study and we compared the body compositional effects of fasted cardio. So steady state, roughly 50 minutes at a moderate intensity, that so-called mm. fat burning zone. Mm. We compared that in a fasted state, overnight fasted state versus a fed state. And we controlled all of the, the variables that we could. We certainly controlled the type of meal that was involved with the intervention and I set up the diets for all of the, the participants and we set protein nice and high at 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And they, we ran the experiment. And then at the end of it, there were no significant differences in body fat loss. And all of the subjects in both groups retained their lean body mass. And so we directly tested this hypothesis that if you train in the fasted state, you're going to be burning fat for fuel, and then you're going to lose more body fat. But it turns out that when you compare two groups of people and you equate 
the amount of protein, carbs, and fat that they consume in the course of the day. You equate calories. It literally does not matter whether that breakfast is before the cardio in the morning or whether it's after the cardio in the morning. And certainly what happens in the short term is that whatever you use for fuel during exercise is based on the fuel availability. So the surrounding meals, particularly the pre-exercise meal, is going to influence fuel availability during training. And so if you train on a fasted, in a fasted state, on an empty stomach, then you are going to, in quotes, burn more fat. You're going, there's going to be a higher degree of fat oxidation during the training bout. Now, if you train in a fed state, there's going to be less fat oxidation unless <laughs> all you ate pre-exercise was fat, then you're going to see some fat oxidation going on. But typically it's a, you know, a typical breakfast meal is going to be a predominance of carbohydrate and maybe some protein and fat. Mm. So mm. there'll be a predominance of glucose oxidation going on. But the the moral of the story is it as far as body fat reduction goes, it doesn't matter what goes on fat oxidation wise in a snapshot of time in the day that it just doesn't matter yeah. it's like <laughs> what matters ultimately is net fat balance at the 24 hour mark so net fat balance would be the difference between fat oxidation and fat synthesis so if fat oxidation outweighs fat synthesis by the end of the day and then you string a bunch of days together, then you're going to see a net reduction in total body fat. And so it, 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 what's even more important than net fat oxidation at the 24-hour mark is a net fat balance by the end of the week. Because on some days, you may be hypercaloric, where you're consuming more calories than you burn. And on some days, you might be hypocaloric, where you're consuming less calories than you burn. But by the end of the week, you would need to have ran a net deficit in terms of fat balance. And that's, that's how you lose body fat. So when we look at a, an exercise bout, it is almost utterly irrelevant whether we're oxidizing fat or not during the exercise bout, as far as the goal of fat loss is concerned. And so that's, that's, the experiment we ran. And that those are the results that we found. And there's a meta-analysis done now by Hackett, and I forgot the, the name of the other authors, but they ran a meta-analysis on the same thing. And, and they yeah. concluded that, you know what, fasted versus fed training, you know, there's no significant difference on body composition when you're comparing two diets of the same total composition. Mm, mm, absolutely. Are there... Are there any situations where that would be helpful though? Because mm. some of the studies that, are, that I read had to do with, you know, it may improve insulin sensitivity for people who are, you know, pre-diabetic and insulin resistant and stuff like that. Okay. So I, I've heard that many times mm. and it does not pan out on a chronic basis. It, it just doesn't pan out. So you can test short-term effects like immediately after the training bout, yeah. you know, with a fat, a fed versus fasted group of subjects. 
And the fasted group of subjects will show all kinds of improvements in ramped up lipolysis, you know, ramped up fat oxidation. But what happens is in, in the fed group, mm -hmm. this fat oxidation occurs at a higher rate at the, the rest of the day. And because like, it, it's all about fuel availability mm. and we are looking at lots in time. Yeah. And so there has not been any, any research that found greater insulin sensitivity or improved handling of glucose or improved glucose metabolism mm. as a result of comparing two diets of the same composition mm. where one of the groups trains fasted and the other group trains fed. And this is once again, because when you train fasted, you oxidize a greater degree of, of fatty acids. You, you, you in quotes, burn more fat during the training bout when you train fasted. However, when you train fed, you burn less fat during the training bout, but you burn more fat in the remainder of the day. And so it all comes out the same at 24 hours. So that's, that's the important thing. And so you have to weigh the objectives here. Mm. Are we trying to burn more fat during the hour of exercise mm. or are we trying to reduce fat over a chronic period? You know, what, what are we trying to do here and what's the best way to do it? And the answer is the best way to do it is the way that you can be consistent with. So there are going to be some individuals who just feel better getting up and training, you know, getting up and, you know, have, have some water, have some fluid of some sort. I don't recommend people just get up and don't drink <laughs> anything and just start training, but some people do feel better training on an empty stomach and that that's fine. And some people feel like crap if they try to train on an empty stomach and they don't feel as energetic. They don't have as much work output. If it's a lifting session, it's pretty rare for people to actually feel better with a high volume, high, high intensity lifting session on a completely empty tank. But there are those, those few who do. Mm. And truly, it, it, w whichever protocol you go with should reflect the end goal. So if some people are just sort of casual trainees, and they want to just gradually kind of get in better shape, then you know what? It doesn't matter. Go with what you feel best on. But we'll take somebody who has the goal of gaining muscle. Mm. They're not likely going to optimize that goal if they put any limitations on their potential work capacity, their potential lifting capacity, because it's all about being able to increase your total volume load of training over, over time, over the long term, if you want to actually put on muscle. Yeah. And that, and that segues nicely into my next question. So last time we had a conversation, we spoke about the importance of meal timing and <clears throat> nutrient timing towards weight loss. And the conclusion was, Hey, it doesn't matter. Adherence to a hypocaloric diet is what's most important, right? So today let's talk about muscle building, right? What kind of durations do we want to kind of think about when it comes to meal timing and nutrient timing is the, if the goal is to maximize muscle building? What do you want to think okay. about? Okay. 
So with muscle building, I like to start off by taking a look at a couple of different populations. Mm -hmm. So the goal, we have that established, it's muscle building. So now we have to ask, okay, what's the population? So what's the goal? What's the population? So the population, if we look at overfat or overweight beginners, then, you know, this, this demographic, they don't necessarily have to push for a caloric surplus. You know, they don't have to pull the strings and make the efforts to make sure they're running, you know, more that they're consuming more food by the end of the day than that, than they're burning. So it's a, it's less urgent with them because they're going to build muscle regardless. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will build muscle and lose fat at the same time. If they're genuinely beginners and getting on Those a program. Newbie gains, Alan. We all yes. want to newbie gains. That's right. Exactly right. They will have the newbie gains and they will also, if you're talking about people with the excess body fat mm -hmm. to spare, then that will reduce as well as they train consistently and it'll happen over time. And this recomposition effect where you're gaining muscle and losing fat, it just diminishes over time as you march towards your potential for muscle gain and or fat loss. So, okay. So that's, that's one population. Now we take a look at intermediates to advanced folks. In other words, people who have been training consistently and progressively for, I want to say, we can say a year, but I'd rather say for a couple of years mm. or, or more. Those are, those are kind of the real intermediates where they really have left behind the, the newbie gains. And so now they really have to try and they really have to pull strings and make special efforts to ensure that those muscle gains happen. And so one of the fundamental things that intermediate folks and advanced folks need to do to gain muscle is to make sure they're running a net hypocaloric condition, hypercaloric condition by the end of the day and by the end of the week. In other words, a caloric surplus Mm. where you're taking in more calories than you're burning by the end of the day. And mm. so how big a surplus are we looking at? Well, the less advanced you are, the lower your training age or training status is, then the bigger a caloric surplus you can productively run without mm. gaining undue amounts of body fat. So intermediates, they can run like 20% above and beyond their normal caloric maintenance. Whereas people who are a little further down the line, they have to look at this range of like, oh, 10%, possibly 20%. But the, the range that the, the sort of sweet spot is somewhere between 10 to 20% as a caloric surplus that you would run daily in order to ensure that you're setting up the body, the body's physiological environment mm -hmm. for muscle growth. And this is because when you're dieting, when you're running hypocaloric conditions, then you inhibit the body's ability to, to generate anabolic processes like muscle protein synthesis. And there is less anabolic signaling activity, these certain enzymes whose activity ramps up 
and it all dovetails towards muscle growth, so muscle protein synthesis and anabolic signaling. And also, when you're running high po caloric conditions, like dieting conditions, mm -hmm. so a caloric deficit, as a lot of people know it as, then you just don't have the energy coming in, the calories coming in, to accommodate escalating amounts of training output. And, and so alongside of this caloric surplus that you're running 10 to 20% mm -hmm. above and beyond your maintenance levels, you're going to want to marry that with progressive resistance training, where you strategically push for increases in reps, load, and sets if and, and when necessary. So you're going to want to push for increases in the total tonnage you're pushing and pulling throughout each training bout yeah. by on an ongoing basis. So those are the elements required. And, and, you know, within that, within these energy increases and these increases in progressive resistance training, of course, you've got the protein question, which has an umbrella guideline, and then you've got certain nuances under that. And so the umbrella guideline for protein requirements is right around a gram per pound of target body weight. We can quibble over the fine details. Like for example, my colleagues and I did a meta-analysis in 2017, 2018. This was Robert Morton et al. Where we found that the sweet spot for protein intake was 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight in trainees who were seeking to gain muscle. Yeah. So we excluded hypocaloric or dieting caloric deficit conditions from that meta-analysis. And so with that in mind, I would rather people just error on the high end and base it on target body weight. So right around a gram per pound of target body weight. And so within that umbrella, you got the nuance of how do we get this protein in optimally to spur forward the growth process. And so it turns out that while you can consume all your day's protein needs in one sitting, let's take a, a large person who, who needs 200 grams of protein to maintain his, his muscle mass. Okay. So let's imagine this person sits down and eats, gosh, you know, all their protein in so something kind of fantastical like that, they will still use over 90% of that protein. It 90% of it will be used for some, any number of metabolic fates mm. in the body, mm. but there is a limit to how much muscle protein synthesis can occur with each dose of protein. So while the body can digest and absorb any amount of protein you throw at it, Muscle protein synthesis is a different phenomenon, and there seems to be a ceiling at somewhere, for, for most people, somewhere between 30 to about 50 grams. Mm. So if you only consume one or two meals in your day, then you will get one or two spikes in, and, so, and sometimes it's, it's more like a slope rather than a spike. Yeah of muscle protein synthesis and taking a couple of steps back to how muscle grows. It's a matter of 
muscle protein synthesis over days and weeks and months mm -hmm. outweighing muscle protein breakdown. So the cycle of muscle protein synthesis and mu muscle protein breakdown is called protein turnover or muscle protein turnover in, in this case. And so in order to maximize net muscle protein synthesis, you want to be able to just within reason, try to maximize muscle protein synthesis in the course of a day. And the way that you do that is by hitting doses of protein that maximize the acute muscle protein synthetic response. And that's somewhere between 30 and 50 grams a day, or about 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. And in order to hit this, if we work from the top down, we think of the total amount of protein that achieves muscle growth, total daily protein being about 1.6 to 2.2 grams mm. of kilogram uh, of uh, 0.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Then the maximal dose to max out muscle protein synthesis being 0.4 to 0.6-ish grams per kilogram of body weight per day. That would be the per meal dose to maximize the acute anabolic response. Then that would require about four doses mm -hmm. of that maximal per meal dose. The maximal per meal dose being 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, or in imperial terms, about 0.2-ish to 0.3-ish grams per pound that you would carry out four times a day if you want to theoretically max out the growth process for the goal of building muscle. And I know I just talked for like seven minutes straight. So I hope, I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you want to hit, you, you want to kind of maximize MPS multiple times a day. If I remember my my geeky stuff correctly, it's between three to four hours between each dose to allow the refectory period and the muscle full effect to happen and all that stuff, right? So you want to give, you want to space them out between three to four hours between doses, is that right? There, There's some quibbling going on about the muscle full effect in, mm. in sort of in, in the real world where you're not necessarily just consuming quickly digested and absorbed forms of protein without any other macronutrients present. And so in the context of mixed macronutrient meals that have these much longer and slower appearance curves and in and, and downstream, once you've ingested the meals, then there really is some debate whether it, that refractory period even applies. Wow. So, so yeah, so in theory, we are, and when we try to combine theory and practice, it does look like 30 to 50 grams of protein, roughly four times a day. But, but if we were to run an experiment that compared, let's say three protein feedings a day mm -hmm. at, oh, oh, you know, 60 60 grams of protein, 60, 65 grams of protein, or even 70, depending on how large the person is. I don't know <laughs> whether we would see meaningful advantage to the four to five to six protein feeding, mm. you know, this kind of like this multiple, you know, idealized protein dose thing versus three 
protein feedings that might not be ideal because they're above and beyond what maxes out muscle protein synthesis. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we would see that difference. We might see it at, if we, you compare one to one or two meals versus, you know, three to three to six meals, Mm -hmm. we might see that there, but three versus four versus five, three and up. I don't know. I really don't know. And of course we don't have that study. Yeah. We, We don't have that study. And we, we technically we do, but it's not, it didn't pass peer review. It's a study by Oyvind and colleagues Mm. and it just never made it past peer review so we can't really cite it but it showed three meals doing either just as good or better than the the higher meal frequency for muscle growth and Mm. i don't know how well they controlled calories and it doesn't Mm. really make sense that that would have been the case and maybe that's why it never passed peer reviewed peer review because the authors really didn't maybe they didn't do a great job of putting the the report together (laughs) yeah that's really interesting alan okay so we are looking at between three to four meals whatever works for the person essentially yeah three meals and up for maximizing muscle growth Mm -hmm. i would say yeah okay amazing cool so last time we also had a conversation about the the awesomeness of your parents-in-law like I'm, I'm still inspired by that, right? And the, the, the transformations they've, they've had at this age, training at their current age, and really, really yeah. smashing it, right? Which mm-hmm. is so awesome. Now, one of the conditions that we see as people age is sarcopenia. So I was wondering if we can yeah. talk about what sarcopenia is, what mm-hmm. the, the risk factors are, and what we can actually do to try and combat it or even prevent it if possible. Mm -hmm. So sarcopenia is age-related loss of muscle mass. Mm. And that kind of goes hand in hand with a lesser known term called dynapenia, which is age-related losses in muscle strength. And dynapenia always kind of goes under the radar whereas sarcopenia is the one that's talked about a lot more but yeah dynapenia is just as as deadly as sarcopenia and they like i said they go hand in hand and even though they're called age-related diseases that is almost a misnomer because you can create a sarcopenic effect through simple disuse of of the musculature So you can create what goes on in age-related muscle loss in a young person if you just put them on bed rest or if you just tell them they cannot train, just stop training. You are ordered to just sit around. (laughs) And so the same stuff happens. Mm. It's just that with the older population, you have other things going on that take longer to manifest, like bone mineral density decreases Mm -hmm. and like even other factors that tie in with with the problems of sarcopenia that exacerbate sarcopenia, like the development of central adiposity and and just obesity in general. Mm -hmm. And then you have this, this other term, sarcopenic obesity, where you have two pathological systems kind of working together to exacerbate the the larger 
picture of disease and, and like the, under the uh, of frailty, mm. frailty is just a, a generalized loss of lean tissue function over time with age, age related. And so sarcopenia, sarcopenic obesity, dynopenia, they're all under this umbrella of frailty along with a bunch of other degenerations. Mm. So unfortunately, you know, with the, with the older population, the, the key is staying mobile and staying, making sure that the musculoskeletal system is challenged and stressed to a healthy degree. Mm. And as people get older, they, as they sort of march towards the, the, the golden gates, they're less motivated to move around mm. either through injury or through disease states. And they're just, just various factors mm. at play that cause sarcopenia, but it's mostly disuse. That's the key. That's the, that is the, 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 the factor, but, and, and the other crucially, well, disuse is the big one. And then I would say maybe second in line, I hate to put these on a hierarchy, but disuse would be the largest. Second would be a lack of protein intake. So the older population, because they don't have the same digestive faculties as the younger population. So there can be changes that happen at the gut microbiome level that unfortunately cause decreases in proper assimilation of nutrients as people reach advanced age. And so when you combine that with a pre-existent insufficiency of protein intake, so the older and, and the senior population, the elderly, they consume on average right around the RDA for protein or a, a little bit above on occasion. So the RDA for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And there is a plethora yeah. of research. <laughs> There's a mountain of studies yeah. showing that that's not enough to maintain lean body mass and the minimum required for really any population in the life cycle to maintain good health, good musculoskeletal and cardiometabolic health mm -hmm. is about 1.2, 1.3, some would even say 1.4 grams per kilogram of body weight as a minimum. Yeah. And so anytime that you want to try to optimize these training adaptations and really strengthen the armor of the elderly population against the ravages of father time and aging, mm. then you're really looking at targeting, if and when possible, 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight as a protein intake. And that is double the RDA. And the, the establishment, uh, the, uh, the conventional wisdom establishment freaks out at the idea of 1.6 grams mm. per kilogram. Oh my gosh, that's so yeah. much. It's unreasonable to ask the elderly to eat that much. How are you going to get them to eat that much? There, it can be done, believe it or not. <laughs> it can be done. So the elderly, their eating patterns, they tend to be either skipping breakfast or just having a conventional breakfast that is like 
eight to 10% protein mm-hmm. <laughs> by calories. Yeah. And they have a marginal amount of protein at lunch, and then they have their major amount of protein at dinner. And so if we can just simply beef up the amount of protein at breakfast, and if possible, let's beef it up at breakfast and lunch, or just simply add two points in the day where we supplement the diet with, you know, a protein shake, Mm. then we can solve this uh, deficient protein problem amongst the elderly. And then we have to hire some qualified folks to help them learn to exercise. Would loosen supplementation in itself help? Say they're having a meal and then you're just supplementing with with extra leucine to make sure they get enough leucine. It wouldn't be a bad thing, but it wouldn't work as well as having all of the rest of the essential amino acids present. Hmm. And there is also some additional benefits to both the non-essential amino acids being there, plus other constituents of the so-called food matrix. So the benefits of protein foods like whey, for example, are more than the sum of its essential amino acid content. You know, you have things like lactoferrin, you, you have other immune enhancing compounds in there, like a whole range of them mm. that are missing. And this, this is a principle that applies to foods in general. So you can take the constituent nutrients, the key nutrients of certain foods, you re- isolate them from the food and feed them to the organism, but you're just not going to get the same health effect. So I think there is a lot to be said with making sure they get a high quality intact protein and if an elderly individual has problems chewing problems, you know, just to, yeah. you know, with that process, then you, you go for liquid nutrition, but make sure it's high quality as possible with intact whole proteins, like whey protein, like milk protein, for example, a lot of people are not averse to that. And food technology today has it such that we can implement these products yeah. pretty successfully. Yeah. Okay. So I'm 41 right now. How do I prepare the, the the 20 year version of me, Alan? What do I really want to focus on right now to protect myself as much as possible, right? From mm-hmm. things like sarcopenia and dinopenia and mm-hmm. all of that. The the formula is the, the three part formula, maybe four part. So we'll talk about the three, the important three is enough protein. <laughs> resistance training in place and make sure you keep an eye on maintaining a healthy body fat level that Mm -hmm. is not excessive and typically that it's it's more a matter of making sure you don't get too much body fat versus making sure you're you don't get too little body fat that's a, a rare problem people have to deal with and so, yeah, that's the three-pronged, <laughs> the three-pronged objective. Protein at somewhere around 1.6 grams per kilogram, all the way up to a gram per pound. That's yeah. that's a that's the right range. Mm-hmm. Resistance training in place for the general population, and it doesn't have to be a high volume thing. So, minimum effective dose for maintaining reasonable levels of strength can be as low as three to five 
sets per muscle group per week if those sets are taken to a reasonable degree of fatigue or failure or close to it. It can be very, it can be that minimal, but I would encourage everybody, not just the elderly population, I would encourage people to resistance train progressively and not necessarily just hover with that minimum effective yeah. dose all the time because you should be challenging your body uh, until the, the bitter end. That's how you hedge your bets towards immortality. <laughs> so, and as far as the third component, aside from getting enough protein and making sure resistance training is in place, the third component of making sure that body fat doesn't become excessive. If body fat becomes excessive and muscle mass is deficient, then you arrive at a state of sarcopenic obesity. And that's a really bad place to be because an excessive amount of body fat it, physiologically, it creates a barrier again, muscle growth because excess body fat actually inhibits muscle protein synthesis mm -hmm. and the body fat, if you have an excess of it, then there will be an excess production of chronic inflammatory factors that make it tough for the body to actually build muscle. So there, there's kind of this biochemical competition going on there. So that would be the objective. And it's a lot easier said than done. And maybe the fourth factor is to maintain a good attitude, <laughs> maintain an optimistic attitude. Yeah. And there's a lot of research behind optimism and the maintenance of health and the mitigation of mm. disease mm. with, if you keep, keep your head up. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And I think the concept of flexibility, which again, I'm going to talk about your, your book again, because sometimes when we want to achieve certain health outcomes, we only think there's only one way to do it right? It's like, oh, I have to, I have to train five to seven days a week. I have to eat these exact amount of protein and I have to do this and I have to do that. And life gets busy. And when life gets busy, what people tend to do is they tend to, to, to stop all these health promoting behaviors altogether because they haven't built that flexibility. So it's very much around, Hey, my life is busy. What can I do right now? even the season of life I'm in to make sure that I'm still maintaining my health to, to the best of my abilities, as opposed to just stopping altogether. Right. Yes. Yes. The, there's often a big divide between the theory and the practice. Yeah. So with something like protein, some people are vegan and so they have a challenge there getting the hitting these protein targets especially if they are averse to the idea of consuming protein supplements protein powders but once you can kind of get over that then something as fundamental as the getting enough protein part yeah. becomes very easy actually yeah absolutely okay Let's talk a little bit about ketogenic diets. I feel like that the 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 hype of the diets has gone down. I don't know. Have you have you noticed that as well, or is it still very much alive? <laughs> it comes in waves. It comes in waves, and yeah, I I haven't really 
seen it totally die down because it's still it's there. pretty strong in some parts. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So do we have any studies that show any negative long-term health effects of being in ketogenic diets long-term? Say you have someone who says, hey, Yusra, I'm on a keto diet. I love it. I can stick with it. I haven't got a problem with having under 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. I'm absolutely okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. Should we worry about the long-term health effects of that? It depends. It, it depends largely on two things. It depends on the person's body composition that mm -hmm. they're maintaining, mm -hmm. as well as their level of physical activity or lack thereof. So your main protection against any sort of adverse effect of any kind of diet is to maintain a certain degree of leanness and muscularity and physical activity. So once you're physically active and lean and you have enough muscle to function properly, mm. then, you know, <laughs> unless you get hit by a truck one day, you're, you're probably going to live at least to the average. But in the case of the ketogenic diet, you have, you run the risk. Let's say you're not somebody who's you know, basically athletic, mm. and physically active and lean and muscular. And let's say you're a regular Joe or a regular Jane. And let's say you're even, you know, maintaining a, a moderately high degree of body fat. Ketogenic diets can be a health risk depending on the food selection, specifically the fat sources in the diet. So there is a consistent body of evidence showing that certain fats are conducive to atherogenesis or the de development of arterial plaque and heart disease. And it's almost a cliche, you know, the types of foods that would lead to this. So if you can think of fatty processed land animal fats, that's kind of what it boils down to. Now, interestingly, aside from like bacon and butter and you know, fatty red meat, okay, and spam, let's say processed, processed meats, processed red meats, mm -hmm. sausages, hot dogs, full fat, those things, those mm -hmm. things are the big culprit. Aside from that, there's some exceptions to the fatty land animal guideline there that you want to keep an eye on and you want to acknowledge. So interestingly, full fat dairy, so full fat whole milk, full fat yogurt, and even cheese, as long as they're not contributing to a caloric surplus that's accumulating and facilitating the gain of excess body fat, they seem to be biologically neutral in terms of heart disease risk. And there can, it can even be helpful as far as other health indexes are concerned. Mm -hmm. So if we take a look at that group, full fat dairy, with the exception of butter, unfortunately, anybody who loves butter, well, well I'm sorry, but we have to pull butter out of this conversation. Yeah. But fermented full fat dairy, particularly it has a really good batting average in the research for having positive health outcomes 
you know, and, and full fat dairy, whole milk, like I said, whole, whole full fat yogurt, that stuff and cheese, even biologically neutral effects on blood lipids and on heart disease risk. So there is nuance to this. Mm. And so, so let's take somebody who goes on keto. Yeah. If they don't load it up with butter and they don't load it up with land animal fats, especially processed meats, fatty processed meats, and instead they populate their fat allotment with things like extra virgin olive oil, nuts, avocados, seeds, and then of course, you know, they can rotate in some of those high fat dairy foods and use butter judiciously. Mm. And on top of that, they need to include at least a moderate amount, not necessarily of, you know, this mountain or abundance of vegetables, <laughs> but foods that, that would be plant foods that would be low in available carbohydrate, like non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. They would need to include that stuff in there. And when you can fit it in, you can include two to three servings of fruit that happens to be low in available carbohydrate, like the berries, for example. Mm. Then you can create a healthy ketogenic diet and you can round that circle of a healthy ketogenic diet if you include fatty fish yeah. in there as, with your, as, as your protein source. You rotate it in there with whatever other meats that you're you're having and eggs as well. And so you can you can see that the ketogenic diet is kind of a double-edged sword depending on your food selection and your dietary fat sources. So there's kind of an art yeah. and a science to yeah. achieving that. And also depending on your goals, right? That would matter. Would if if I was if I was looking to to train really hard, hard and build muscle and stuff like that, would being on a keto diet reduce my ability to to do that? Yes, it would. Yes, mm -hmm. it would. And the research is very consistent in showing that when two groups are compared, one group is ketogenic, and the other group is just this conventional high carb control group, mm -hmm. and there are. A number of studies now that equate protein between the groups at an adequate amount of protein, like 1.6-ish and, <clears throat> and even up of protein. And it consistently shows lower muscle mass and lower lifting capacity in the ketogenic diet group. There's actually a meta-analysis out right now, very recently put out by Vargas Molina and colleagues. And they, they kind of did their, their meta-analysis wrong. They reported it, it wrong. Because when you look at the individual studies in the meta-analysis, with one exception, all of the studies showed better performance in terms, of, uh, in terms of lifting performance as well as lean body mass gain or retention in the control group versus the keto. Mm. And so, yeah, their reporting was very, was very strange. And I talked about it and I, I'm looking at it. I just got done picking the, the, the study apart in, in my research review. So it's fresh in my mind. How is, is that, is that in the upcoming research review or is it that's, looking forward to well, that? 
upcoming <laughs> upcoming one yeah yeah so but yeah that's that's just the breaks if you look at the individual studies you'll you'll see that it's just very consistent that keto is just highly inefficient at the goal of muscle gain it just it compromises the process as you can imagine you have lower resting glycogen levels you have lower lifting capacity and the other thing about ketogenic dieting, at least within the first few months that you engage it, mm. it's highly satiating. And so it it blunts your hunger and makes it mm. difficult for people to sustain the caloric surplus necessary to accommodate these escalating training mm. volumes. Mm. Yeah. 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 And yeah. And when I think about it, I for me, right, I'm thinking about, okay, I, I want to, because my aim right now i want to to be eight eight years old and be like your father-in-law like this is it that's so cool (laughs) right right so i'm thinking okay do i really is there a benefit to being in a ketogenic diet knowing that it's it's going to limit my capacity and ability to to age as strong as i want to i don't know you know so i think people have to think about what their goals are you know, before they kind of decide what diet to, to, to stick with long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And just, I mean, observationally, and um, we, we, I think we brought up the blue zones in the last mm-hmm. conversation. None of the blue zones are ketogenic, not even close. And so it could be just a product of their default environment, but still, there's really no indication that ketogenic diet, ketogenic dieting is particularly beneficial for optimizing the, the aging process. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So my next question is, have you jumped in any frozen lakes lately, Alan? Your post? Cold water emerge? Yes, because I wanted to, I wanted to, you talk about that last time, but obviously we got kicked out and now is <laughs> the best time to do that. So talk to us about that. The, <laughs> the, the stories that that I hear a lot around cold water immersions is how it, it boosts your immunity. And of course, we don't have the data for that, right? What, what kind of claims do you, do you often hear around cold water immersions? There are speculations about it boosting immunity, Mm. but this effect is very transient and it's not very strong. There are claims of it increasing energy expenditure, which is true. I mean, it does. Anytime you subject your body through conditions that force it to shiver Mm. and recover from an extreme bout of cold, that requires some energy expended. And so that part is true. However, you know, the, the other side of the coin is that there are people with goals of, li- of lifting performance goals and people with goals of gaining muscle and cold water immersion and just general, you know, cold therapy in general, it antagonizes all of the processes involved with muscle growth. So it vasoconstricts instead of vasodilates. So it, it cinches the vascular structures closed there. It, it inhibits 
a phenomenon called angiogenesis, which is the creation of new vascular structures. It inhibits muscle protein synthesis, which is fundamental to muscle growth. And it also inhibits anabolic signaling, these anabolic signaling protein activities that is fundamental to muscle growth. And it also <laughs> decreases strength training performance. It decreases maximal strength capacity. And all of these, these processes and phenomena dovetail towards increases in muscle size and strength. Yeah. And it just gets in the way of those things. So we can say that if you don't have any primary goals of gaining muscle size and strength, then cold water immersion is just fine. It's not going to hurt you. And some people enjoy the subjective feeling that they get from it. Some people enjoy the thought of building mental toughness by suffering for a time period, you know, suffer through like yeah. anywhere from five to 15 minutes, you suffer and then you do your suffering and then you continue your day. And there, there is a consistent demonstration of placebo effect from the, from cold water immersion. And it, it's really interesting how that works. It does work on a placebo basis, but there have been a handful of studies that have compared it to a, an in quotes, sham therapy or a placebo. Mm -hmm. And both the placebo and the cold water immersion give the same benefit. <laughs> and so it, it is one of those things. It's like, it depends on the goal, whether or not cold water immersion is going to help you or do nothing, yeah. or whether it's actually going to inhibit your goals. So that's an interesting topic. And a lot of people are emotionally attached to their daily rituals. They're emotionally attached to the good news or the very positive speculations that they might hear about cold water immersion and getting in that ice bath. And certainly a lot of people are emotionally invested because they paid like, let's say $10,000 for a special tub. And the last thing they want to hear is that, okay, you're just getting a good placebo kick from that at best. Yeah. And at worst, you're actually inhibiting your gains. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're humans. We all like our biases confirmed, right? And stuff like that. So when, when we learn differently, it's like, oh my God, what have I done? Right. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. That's for sure. Okay. One last question. What supplements are your go-to supplements add-in? Okay. Let's see if I can get all of these without forgetting some. At the, I guess the base of the supplement pyramid, it's not really a supplement. I, I more consider it a food because it is, it's a food stuff, you know? And so yeah. protein powder, my go-to is, is whey protein because it's, uh, well, it's the best in a number of departments and it also happens to be the most economical. I mean, you can get fancy, I suppose, and get a blend of whey and casein and maybe be getting the best of both worlds, but the literature as a whole, it shows that there's no meaningful advantage to either whey or casein. So you just get whey, it's a lot less expensive. And, but if you make things like fluff, like protein fluff, you need to use casein to do it. <laughs> so if you're going to break out the KitchenAid... <laughs> get that mixer going, then you need to use casein for, for that. So that's why I have casein in the house. And so 
the other supplements would be a multivitamin. So a multivitamin and min slash mineral. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's a no-brainer supplement for recovering potential shortfalls micronutritionally. And that's kind of inevitable from for reasons of just food quality, declining <laughs> nutrients and soil, for example, which unfortunately is a real thing. And also just the suboptimality of day-by-day -day living and food selection and the way that life corners you into just a suboptimal range and amounts of each diet, especially if you are not on this radical bulking phase where you're able to eat a lot of every food group every day and able to cover all of your bases. So it is a no brainer to mm -hmm. do, do a multivitamin. So I do that. And I take creatine. So that's five grams a day because I don't know, because I was skinny in my earlier childhood and it traumatized me. That's why I'm on creatine now. <laughs> <laughs> and I take vitamin D, mm. D3 specifically, because there's just too much positive literature on getting a certain amount of it. I don't believe in mega hyperdosing D3 to you know, push my testosterone levels <laughs> up through the roof and get these hypothetical muscular benefits and stuff. But it's more like a covering my bases thing because I, I don't spend a lot of time in the sun. Mm -hmm. And vitamin D3 is, is sparse in almost everybody's diet. And the next one is magnesium. Magnesium is one of these multitasking essential nutrients that are missing in optimal amounts in most people's diets. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I also take, I take vitamin C. Uh, there, there's enough data on vitamin C showing its immune benefits, however small. In these days and times, it never hurts to have good immunity. And also vitamin C works in conjunction with collagen protein to strengthen connective tissues. And so I forgot to mention one of my protein powders is a 50-50 mix of whey and collagen. And I know I'm missing something here. Yes. Fish oil. So I, I take three, three grams of fish oil, which gets me about a gram and a half gram, a little, a little bit, pretty close to a gram of EPA and DHA yeah. per day, because I don't eat fatty fish quite enough. And there is enough literature to point to the benefit of getting a certain amount of Omega-3 fatty acids in the diet. Yeah. And believe it or not, I think that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. When you recommend cre uh, creatine, mm -hmm. do you recommend, say, five grams, or do you recommend it based on someone's body weight? Because I see some people going 0 0.3 grams, not 0 0.03 grams per kilogram of body weight and stuff mm. like that. What's your go-to? My go-to is trying to save people from doing the math. So three to five grams a day as a maintenance amount. Mm. You know, we could justify certain larger individuals going up to seven grams a day or so. But in the literature, the most common dose shown effective is five grams. Mm. So uh, if you are a tiny person 
okay, three grams might be appropriate. If you're the average size person, then five grams. And yeah, so that, that's usually what I default to, but of course, you know, in the book you would list like the, yeah. you know, 0.004 yeah. <laughs> to 0.07 yeah. grams per kilogram of body weight. And people always ask, you know, do you need a loading phase or do you not need a loading phase? And you hit your point of being fully saturated, the, the muscle stores of creatine being fully saturated at roughly four weeks. If you just consume a maintenance dose, if there's some time crunch that you need to have the full effects of creatine kicked in as soon as possible, then a loading phase of roughly 20 to 25 grams a day for a week will do it. Yeah. And if you're somebody who has stomach issues doing that, then you can do about 10 grams a day for two weeks and then you'll yeah. be loaded yeah there's a there's a claim that's been going around and i haven't looked into this in depth in depth so i think i think this is a good question to ask does it dehydrate you if you don't hydrate enough because there are people who say oh, creatine can dehydrate you if you're not consuming enough fluid so it's almost like i need to consume more fluids because i'm, I'm taking creatine I actually looked into that and there's no evidence that creatine is inherently dehydrating or inherently raises your fluid requirements. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of surprised to, to see that. So yeah, you should just maintain good hydration regardless and not worry that you need to kind of push it higher um, if yeah. you consume creatine. And I've also been asked a lot, like what form of creatine should I be taking? And so it is creatine monohydrate. That's the, the most prolifically studied and the most proven, in quotes, form of creatine. And it always helps to make sure that the product that you consume has the CreaPure seal. CreaPure. Yeah. And that ensures that you're getting a reliable source of creatine instead of some sort of shady source of creatine that may be impure or contaminated with various stuff that you don't want yeah. in, in the supplement. And then, you know, there's also the issue of responders and non-responders yeah. to creatine. So in the literature, non-responders, believe it or not, they can, they span 20 to 30% of the population. And this is because 20 to 30% of the population have a combination of, of things, have one or more things that prevent them from realizing the benefits of creatine. And one of them is high pre-existing muscle levels of creatine mm. through either diet or just diet and genetics. And then the other factor is a lower versus higher amount of type two or fast twitch muscle fibers. And it's just how people are built genetically. Those with higher, higher amounts of type two fibers will get a much more robust from creatine mm. than those with a lower amount of type two fibers. And then you have the combination of the, you know, genetics and uh, pre-existing levels and fiber type that can really sort of compromise certain individuals ability to gain benefits from creatine. So 
unfortunately, <laughs> three yeah. out of four people will respond great to creatine. Yeah. And then one out of four will be like, stuff doesn't really work. Yeah. I mean, but, personally, I, I tried to test it out because I supplement with creatine, right? I've been to, doing it for about three years now. And I thought to myself, right, how would I know if I'm if I'm a, a responder or an unresponder? So I stopped supplement, supplementing for about three months and I can't tell. <laughs> yeah. I'm a responder. Yeah. I was like, I can't tell, you know. So like, I don't know. One of the one of the, the indicators about being a creatine responder versus mm. a non-responder is the gain in in water weight and lean lean body weight mm. within the first month so after loading if you do a loading phase mm. then it would be after the first week but once you're saturated with creatine it's very typical for responders to gain two percent of their starting body weight mm. and when you get that gain on the scale then you can figure okay either i stuffed my face real good for the last few weeks or i'm a responder to creatine mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on here today and for talking to me. I wanted to talk about this last thing that has been an, an incredible resource for me. I, I was doing research last night and I was like, okay, how do I find amazing papers on this thing that I was looking at? And all I did, I, I went into AARR, the index, search what I was looking for and bam, all the papers that I needed were there. So talk to us about your, your monthly review and where people can find it and, and all that stuff. Okay. Well, thank you. First, thank you so much for the kind words and the encouragement about the research review. This is something that has been my whole life for the last 15 years, you know, every month, just making sure that i it, the, the month ends in me saying, yes, I did it. <laughs> it's time to time to post this next issue. So it's been a, been a long journey. And it's very interesting watching everybody in the space come up with their own research review now, which is annoying, but it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing for the industry. And, and I, I think what is done is that it brought it, it brings light to to the evidence based space because sometimes it's hard it when you're busy when you're running businesses in a home to be to be on top of research but having such a resource is like it makes it so much easier to be an an evidence based practitioner because there isn't any extra effort that you need to put in as much anyway right yeah i'm that and that's my goal that's that's what I love to hear. I mean, practitioners have the huge job of the huge energy consuming job of making sure that they are servicing clients properly and getting them results. And there's so many facets to that from just the day to day, the, the scheduling, the logistics, and then the psychological part of it as well. Mm. Just being able to provide that that resource that helps practitioners stay on top of what we know currently i think that that is especially important and it's really cool to know that it actually benefits practitioners in getting their clients better results and getting them 
better results too. So that that's the whole goal. You know, that's that's the whole goal. After you have been in the, the field for, well, in my case, 30 years, you want to be able to see the field become better. And as much as I do throw out jabs about everybody copied my research review, the reality is the field is better for it. And so, yeah, so yep, you can find my review at alanaragon.com. And yeah, I, I, I'm biased towards thinking it's the best value possible <laughs> as far as this thing goes I, I am subscribed to to every research review out there yours yours is the best one. Oh, girl <laughs> oh man i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to remember that and write that down i'm gonna save that one <laughs> thank, thank you so much thank you so much and all right guys so you've heard about alan's research review and you need to get his book the flexible dieting book whether you're a practitioner or whether you're just someone who who wants to be healthy and fit and maintain a healthy lifestyle who has goals whatever your goals are your answers are in this book i'm going to have links up on the podcast show notes of where you can reach out to Alan and grab his stuff and his, his books and ARR and all that jazz. But for now, Alan, thank you so much. Again, time has flown an hour and a half. Where's it gone? Right. It's like, really? Oh my gosh. That's so quick. That was real quick. I love it. I love it. You are so excellent. Yusra. I got to say, I, you are just such an, such a wonderful person all the way through. I mean, professional person, human being, everything. And I'm just so happy that, that, you're in the space and you're making such positive waves and you're making a difference and it's just a wonderful thing. So I, I have to throw all the praise right back to you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. All right, everybody, that's it for now. And I'll talk to you soon.